U.N. official who took the U.S. position that night recalled, exasperated, but ISIS are literally selling every woman they catch of a different religion into slavery and rape. The fact is that they're doing it in Iraq, but being supplied and coming from Syria. Then the fact that bombing them is against the law? Screw that. Bond was not asked to take part in the discussion. That is how he likes to operate, above the fray, current and former staffers told me. He likes to get a consolidated recommendation. He doesn't want to navigate between people debating in front of him, one said. Besides, that night, Bond was also dealing with the Ebola outbreak, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Israel's bombardment of Gaza, violence in Mali, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic, and the persecution of the Rohingya in Myanmar. The dignitaries were already landing in New York for the climate summit. Even more would arrive a day later for the general debate held each year at the opening of the U.N. General Assembly. Befitting the world's farthest-flung bureaucracy, most of the staffers' argument took place over email. After a few hours, they reached a compromise that would back the United States and delivered their agreement to the Secretary General. But the final decision would be Bonds alone. He had not gotten the job for his decisiveness or executive experience. As South Korea's foreign minister, he'd earned the nickname Ban Chusa, roughly Ban the Mid-Level Bureaucrat. Yet this was the kind of decision he has faced consistently in eight years at the UN helm and that UN leaders have faced for 70 years. How to balance competing desires for peace, human rights, and the rule of law while placating the powers who support the United Nations' needs to survive. Ban decided to accept his staff's recommendations. Confidence told me that he trusted the United States' intentions in Syria. He would not publicly quibble the next day when Samantha Power, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, argued in a letter, addressed to Bond but meant for the Security Council, that the bombing constituted collective self-defense of, nominally, Iraq, under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter. The same argument past U.S. administrations used to justify arming the Nicaraguan Contras and escalating the Vietnam War. In the end, all Bond could do was what he always does, issue a statement. It had to be carefully worded, neither condemning the airstrikes nor asserting their legality. His aides knew this comment would likely be the most reported thing Bond said all day, yet the delicacy of the position required attracting as little attention as possible. I think it is undeniable, he would say, that these extremist groups pose an immediate threat to international peace and security. With the next day's schedule already set, he would read it at his morning press conference, the one that was supposed to have focused the world's attention on global warming. The not-so-secret truth about the United Nations is that it is almost entirely passive when it comes to the most pressing matters of global security. That weakness was built into its structure— Because it can't coerce Russia, the United Nations has no formal role in forcing or monitoring the latest ceasefire in Ukraine. Its months-old strategy of freezing the Syrian conflict into a humanitarian safe zone around Aleppo has so far failed to freeze anything. Its supervisory mission in Syria is so weak that aid groups ignore it in favor of their own shadow reports. In many places where the United Nations has stumbled, such as Haiti, Even its credibility as a humanitarian agency is in doubt. The United Nations is often most effective at what Heidi J.S. Twarek, head of Harvard's UN History Project, calls communications clearinghouse.
a Greek chorus reminding us of the toll of the conflicts it can't stop. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child set off a media storm with its February 4th update on Iraq, drawing attention to ISIS's enslavement of girls, mass executions of boys, beheadings, crucifixions of children, and burying children alive. Yet it couldn't get people to read the whole report. The next line, deploring the very large number of children killed and severely injured as a result of the current fighting, including by airstrikes, went ignored. Despite it all, the United Nations is currently irreplaceable. One of the first steps a new country or government almost always takes is to seek a UN seat. The few that don't even try, such as the self-proclaimed Islamic State, might as well declare themselves pariahs. That unique ability to confer legitimacy makes the United Nations a place governments can get relatively cheap settlements of potential.